Welcome to Turning Conscience into Action, the Earth Charter Podcast. Join Miriam Vilela, Earth Charter International Executive Director, in her fascinating conversations with great thinkers, scholars, and activists from around the world who are working in the fields of sustainability, ethics, education, and social transformation. Our purpose is to generate new insights on how to face current global challenges and inspire informed action. Welcome to our podcast, our Earth Charter podcast. Today has the have the pleasure of having Hazel Henderson with us. Uh, Hazel has done so much and has um, influenced the minds of many people around the world. Many of us working in the field of sustainability for for a long time. She's a futurist and has been writing and giving speeches and conferences and involved in many projects for many years. Hazel, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Marianne. You know how much I love the Earth Charter. Yes, you have been a great uh, inspiration for the work we do. So today we would like to have a conversation with you about um, a number of things that you have been involved uh, from uh, the thinking around uh, beyond GDP, uh, the current crisis, uh, some of your thoughts on, on the layer cake that you, you created many years ago and that continues to influence uh, many people and so on. So let's start with the first question, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, what's your take on the current challenges uh, humanity is facing. 2020 is certainly a historical year in the world in terms of the pandemic, uh, inequality and racism in the U.S. and etc. Therefore, what do you think is the most uh, needed, what's the most needed actions to be taken uh, for humanity, to take humanity to the right path? Well, you remember, Miriam, that um, you came on our webinar um, after Fritjof Capra and I wrote that paper together um, about the pandemic called Looking Back, Lessons Looking Back from 2050. And um, basically, you know, um, I still believe that we had it right, that it is the planet now is teaching humans directly. And it's as if the planet is saying to humanity, how many times do I have to kick you in the butt? <laughs> how many floods, fires, hurricanes, pandemics um, are going to be needed to get your attention? That you're living in a way which is not only destroying your own health, but destroying the planet. And so uh, I think more and more people now in my networks, you know, one of the active networks um, that we were an early member of is the Green Economy Coalition, which is, you, you may know this group that sure, began yes. um, in London. And I was just looking, I was just um, uh, posting their latest newsletter. And, you know, uh, basically almost everybody is seeing now that it probably took something like this pandemic to get everybody to stop and reflect. And it probably is um, 
I have to say, almost a blessing that it stopped the crazy global casino financial system, at least for a little while. You know, it's now springing back because it's not in touch with Main Street or the ecosystem. It's in its own little bubble of magic financial thinking. But uh, basically, um, it did get everybody's attention and opened up these kind of opportunities where people could suddenly see if they lived in Beijing or Delhi or London or wherever, how nice it was to suddenly be able to see the blue sky and uh, not have to, uh, you know, be breathing this poisonous air that uh, kills so many people, so many millions of people every year, probably many more than are killed by any um, pandemic. Sure, so, the, pandem um, the pandemic has made us stop and therefore has uh, generated a positive yes. effect, in, at least in the environment. Yes, and also more and more people now in my network, and as you know, we're a sort of network of networks, and uh, we have um, partners and correspondents all over the world, and more and more of them uh, also relate the pandemic, as Fritjof and I did, uh, to climate change and to the unsustainability of the GDP economic growth model. You know, that um, the, the, the planet was very clearly saying, you know, stop chopping down trees, um, stop with this industrial consumption uh, economy, and uh, probably stop killing animals for food. And I mean, you know, and I, I was on a webinar ye uh, yesterday um, on the whole uh, shift in the food system. And as you know, we've been focusing on that with our Green Transition Scoreboard the last two years, how the whole food system in this world is teetering on the 3% of fresh water on this planet and is in dire, dire danger now unless we expand to all of the um, other indigenous plants that are not in the financial trading networks, but, you know, the much more uh, local uh, plants, the wild foods, and the ones that love growing in salt water, which is 93%, 97% of the water on this planet being salty. Amazing, something that we never stop to think, huh? That's right, right. And so suddenly um, on this webinar yesterday, um, I was just uh, amazed that the plant-based foods and beverages that are taking over from the business of growing animals and killing them for meat. Uh, it's now the double-digit growth all over the world of these plant-based uh, foods and beverages. And it, it's just amazing that there's at least a hundred startup companies all over the world um, that are now shifting away from food based on uh, raising animals, 
I mean, it, it couldn't have happened without something as universal, really, as, as a pandemic for everybody to suddenly realize, oh, my Lord, you know, um, we, we have to change. And so there is one example of a system that I thought would take, you know, some kind of global crisis of, of uh, hunger to change. And, and now it, it may be changing um, just because of the shock uh, and the awareness now, you know, that raising animals for, for human food was contributing 15% of all of the greenhouse gases. Yeah, so clearly our path of food production or any other industrial production, yes. we're not going towards the, on the right path. Right. And then we had uh, one of our webinars last week, which uh, I don't know whether you had a chance to look at yet. We have a recording of it with Francis Morlapé, you know, who mm -hmm. um, has the best-selling book. It's now the 50th anniversary of her book called Diet for a Small Planet. And she was telling us all this 50 years ago. And, and uh, she was emphasizing on our webinar that uh, over 50% of all of the agricultural land um, is, goes to uh, raising and feeding animals. And we only get 17% back in actual food. Yeah, this is totally so that insane. kind of incredible waste. It just we just can't have that kind of incredible waste anymore. So uh, these are these are the changes that we're now seeing that I didn't think we would see for another fifty years, happening in real time. So the current times is hel uh, helping in a way or speeding up the process for us to open the eyes and realize. I mean, for the yes. global community to to realize it. Yes, it's kind of an awakening. Right. You know, it, it is a terrible tragedy, um, and the the the, uh, the way it's illuminated um, all of the fault lines in U.S. society. You know, I grew up in Britain, and um, I came to this country. I sort of really bought into the whole American dream. You know, and this country has certainly been very good to me. But it has been based on this systemic racism, and of course, there's all of the other kind of uh, limitations of human uh, awareness that in many societies, you know, certainly in Britain where I grew up, sexism and misogyny and um, all kinds of stupidity um, and inequality and the what has happened the last two weeks here in the US um, is that um, this tragic uh, death that took place on the street in Minneapolis has suddenly widened into a general realization that that poor man who was killed uh, by police officers um, was, was kind of a symbol of what had been going on with um, with African Americans uh, ever since they were brought here as slaves, and, and you know um, the the now all of the mass media in the U.S. 
are now um, running more truthful stories, not only about how the police operate and how unfairly the justice system works, but how this systemic institutionalized racism, um, which prevents uh, uh, African Americans from having good access to healthcare, good access to housing, uh, access to um, a good um, education, that um, it's all systemic. And for the first time, there's so many African American leaders have been on uh, the media here in the US the past week. It's been so amazingly refreshing that they've all been given airtime to tell um, their stories of, of how how terrible it has been for them growing up in a country where um, they were always afraid, afraid of having to teach their children. You know, you have to be really, really careful, you know, um, mm -hmm. because, yes, yes. you know, and, and so the, 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 the crowds that are coming out, I'm sure you've seen them there, um, in uh, on your TV in Costa Rica, but the crowds are all multi-racial uh, and very diverse. Sure. And this mm -hmm. is a whole change, you know, because with the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the movement for civil rights, I mean, most of the big marches were predominantly African Americans. And now it's completely different. There's, there's every possible shade and hue and ethnic um, uh, uh, people in the streets together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this, this is, uh, uh, most of the African American leaders now are saying, wow, this is, this is actually something different and we have to build on it now. Yeah. And of course, for, for people like me, the most important thing really is to remove this president and um, make sure that we uh, get him out of the White House on January, in January of next year. Mm -hmm. Because every, every day almost that he's in office, um, he's creating more and more danger and to our democracy and uh, to our constitution. And now at last, um, some of the leaders, particularly the, the military leaders who were serving in his cabinet, are now going public and saying he, he must be removed or he must resign. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, uh, Hazel, um, let's talk a little bit about GDP and beyond the whole notion beyond GDP. You played such yeah. a leading role in changing people's perception on GDP. You have really worked for so many years to get people to shift away the focus or the energy or the attention on GDP and look beyond that, right? So how do you think uh, this yes. shift, shift is happening? Is it taking place in the minds of people in, within go governments and private sector? Uh, what, what is your understanding well, yes, on that yes. concept itself? Well, the good news is, um, uh, and this is just a couple of weeks ago, you know, um, our, my company, Ethical Markets, um, 
advised the European Commission on the Beyond GDP conference they put on in the European Parliament in 2007. So that was what, 17, 13 years ago. And um, basically, we paid to have um, a survey done with Globescan, the big polling company. And this survey was in 12 countries around the world. And it, we had huge majorities in every one of those countries um, saying that they agreed that a money-based indicator like GDP um, was not a good measure of progress. And instead that we should use um, real world data, uh, which is readily available in indicators all over the world, um, in health, education, and environment. And so I presented the findings um, of that first survey in 2007 at the European Parliament. And um, the European Parliament, uh, if, if you go to www.beyond-gdp.eu, uh, it has the proceedings of that meeting and they have a newsletter they've been publishing to the members of the European um, Union, uh, all of the member countries, ever since 2007. And we repeated the survey in 2009 just to see whether people had become fearful because of the financial meltdown that took place. Uh, in 2008, and we found no, they still, there were still the same huge majorities that understood that GDP was not the right indicator of progress. Then we did it again in 2013, same result. And uh, a lot of politicians uh, at that um, European, um, European Commission people uh, had been telling me, you know, I was on the organizing committee, oh no, Hazel, you know, the problem is that the public doesn't understand this. And I said, well, why don't we do a survey? And they said, oh no, we can't afford to do a survey. So I said, okay, my company will pay for it then, you know, you can pay for it. And so Globescan, our good friends, they took half the cost and we took the other half. And we were able to prove all in all of those three surveys that they were absolutely wrong and it was the politicians and the um, economic um, advisors uh, and the decision makers in companies they were the ones who didn't understand that the public has been ready for this for almost 20 years so two weeks ago Miriam uh, to my amazement, I got an email from my friends at Globescan and they said, Hazel, we're going to put our survey on Beyond GDP into the field again. Mm, because wonderful. now we're absolutely sure that we'll have even greater majorities. I mean, the majorities we had last time in Brazil and all over the world, uh, Kenya, I mean, you know, ev everywhere. Uh, they were in the 79 to 82% range of agreeing that we should instead, instead of using money indicators like GDP, 
um, which as you know, is just a cash flow kind of money indicator. Instead, why don't we use real world scientific data? You know, how many parts per million of junk is in the air? And this was the approach that I uh, did with the Calvert Group when I was an advisor at the Calvert Group. We brought out the Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators, which mm -hmm. was published and we launched it. Yeah, we launched them uh, at the National Press Club in Washington in 2000. And um, the whole idea was to unbundle uh, the indicators um, and to use the appropriate scientific metric for each one. So the ones on uh, urban uh, air pollution, for example, we didn't use money. We used parts per million of junk in the air. And, you know, every one of the indicators was in the correct scientific metric, whether it was healthcare, you know, it was infant mortality, life expectancy, and, um, you know, chronic disease and, uh, uh, you know, disability adjusted uh, uh, life expectancy that the World Health Organization puts out. Mm -hmm. And so, that was the first uh, time that a, an actual asset management company had challenged the GDP. And uh, so we still own the, uh, the trademarks to that because uh, Calvert a few years ago, now, you know, there's so many other new indicators now, we don't really need to continue updating them, but it was the first, uh, model that unbundled the indicators and said, look, what does this have to do with money? Yeah. And of course, now we have the best of all, which is the sustainable development goals. And thankfully now, everybody is uh, targeting, this is happening with companies all over the world, as well as cities and countries. They're all targeting uh, the sustainable development goals and in whatever metric and whatever uh, uh, aspect of the economy they are most capable of working on. Sure. So it was a, it's a true systems model. We so, can certainly um, say I, that uh, the thing, the, this idea has evolved in the minds of many because uh, back in the 90s it was very hard to believe that people would really consider uh, thinking of uh, other indicators uh, beyond GDP, right? Yes, because the media, uh, I mean, the one of the first um, uh, things that we did in Brazil when President Lula came into office in 2002, um, and he appointed his finance minister as a medical doctor. I don't remember his name now, but we uh, put together a conference in, uh, in uh, Curitiba. Mm -hmm. uh, which we called the first international conference on implementing indicators of sustainable development and quality of life. And it was sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce um, of the, uh, the um, province in, in which Curitiba is. I can't remember the name of the provincial, the, the province. You probably know because you're came from Brazil. Paraná, anyway, Paraná, 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 Curitiba. Paraná, yes. Yes, in Paraná. 
and so the, we had this conference and there were over 700 statisticians from all over the world who had statistics of health, education, poverty gaps, quality of life, all of this stuff. And um, you'll still see my article in my archives. You know, I have an archive uh, at hazelhenderson.com. And I wrote this uh, syndicated column in Interpress Service. I was a regular columnist there. And it was called Statisticians of the World Unite. Mm. So it was so amazing. So we had all of these people there and, and all of the um, business community in Curitiba. And we held a press briefing, which, which I kind of chaired because I was one of the you know, organizers of this thing. And we got all of the press there, all of the Brazilian press, and we explained that they shouldn't just take the GDP numbers and um, stick them on the air or print them in the newspaper. They should um, question, what does this number mean? You know, mm -hmm. and so we educated a lot of the Brazilian press and after that meeting, the finance minister went to the IMF and said, um, because one of the conclusions we came to is that another real problem with GDP is it has no asset account. And as you know, um, Brazil is a very highly urbanized country. And of course, they need to spend a tremendous amount of money on hospitals and schools and sanitation and public um, infrastructure. And yet the way GDP works is that they count all of those public investments by taxpayers mm -hmm. as, um, as basically um, debt. And it's all counted as debt in the debt to GDP ratio, but there's no asset side. And yet the assets created by all of those taxpayer investments, the schools, the roads, the hospitals, the airports, the city of Brasilia, all counted for nothing. Sure. And so, uh, so the finance minister, this was 2003, our meeting was October 2003. And so he went up and he talked with Ann Kruger, who was the chief economist at the IMF, and said, look, this is crazy. Um, of course, these are investments, and why, why don't they show up? And, you know, uh, why does it look as if Brazil has this very high amount of debt to GDP, where if you had an asset account, it would cut the debt in half? And so the IMF actually agreed. And um, immediately what happened was that um, Wall Street fell in love with Brazil's sovereign bonds because it cut the debt to GDP ratio in half. I mean, you see, that's how important um, with a stroke of the pen, suddenly everybody was buying uh, Brazilian sovereign bonds because they got yeah. the numbers right. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is amazing. Now, uh, yeah. many years ago, you, you came up with something that I think helped many of us understand some of it. 
which was your the metaphor you used with the layer cake. Uh, I don't remember when it was, but I, certainly when I came across it, I found it as a very useful way of looking at um, new ways of approaching oh, economy. Yeah. Yeah? So you did create well, that image. You know, it was very useful for many of us. I have used it many times in class. In the, oh, would so you share with that. us a little bit, of, like what is that layer cake and um, what is that? Well, uh, basically. Basically, it was 1982, and my daughter, who was then about nine, ten years old, came into my uh, office, which was like in my bedroom, um, and she said, Mom, what, what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, and so I drew her this diagram, and I said, you know, what I'm trying to do is to explain um, the limitations of economics and that economics only um, measures about half of the production that goes on in a society. And they measure the top layer, the icing on the cake, which I call the private sector, you know, and they measure the, le the next layer down, which is the public sector and all of those investments that we make as taxpayers in roads and schools and hospitals. But then there's a third layer down um, which the economists completely ignored, which is the 50% of all the production in all societies, which is unpaid. And this is the really the social economy, the mutual aid economy. It's mostly women raising children, taking care of households, um, volunteering in the community, um, it's men, uh, their husbands who are creating owner-built housing and um, growing food for their own use and all of that. And then the, the layer at the bottom that the whole thing rests on is the productivity of nature, mm -hmm. um, which is what keeps us all alive, you know, and that's the, the way plants uh, harvest all those free photons that come in from the sun every day and um, the phytoplankton in the ocean and that's the basis of the food um, that we all survive on and it's so that layer cake shows that the economics profession only looks at the top two layers of the cake and completely misses the two lower layers of the cake which support the whole official GDP measured top two layers. So she said, oh, okay. And then I remember she went off to bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It's such a, such a good way of explaining what you were doing, but it has helped not only your daughter, but many, many, many people around <laughs> the world that have looked at this layered cake of Hazel Henderson and say, okay, aha. Here it is. It's about giving visibility to the to, to what is there, but it's invisible in the in the economic terms. Yeah. No? So it's a kind of a maybe it was the beginning of a new economic story through your layered cake that helped so much. Uh, many well, a lot of yeah. understand uh, it. I'm happy about it because a lot of feminist economics um, is based on that. You know, even though when women I uh, went into the economics profession and tried to use my layer cake and say, well, look, let's quantify all of the unpaid work. 
their thesis advisors, you know, were all men, um, you know, wouldn't uh, qualify their research. And so too many of them became good girls, you know, and decided to go with the old economic model. But a lot of them uh, became true feminists and uh, began quantifying. Uh, mostly it was Marilyn Waring, the Australian woman who became a member of parliament, mm -hmm. who was um, at that time, and she wrote a book called If Women Counted. Mm -hmm. She explored that whole unpaid layer of the cake. And, uh, and so she really began the whole movement of quantifying um, the power and you know, the productivity of all of this unpaid work. And the, the funny thing is about a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine in London who runs a think tank called Forum on the Future, Jonathan sure. Porritt, sure. he runs, John, no Jonathan, mm -hmm. and he sent me a, a, a link to um, a, an article by Andy Haldane, who was his chief economist at the Bank of England, and it's all about the power of the social economy, uh, the unpaid, what I call the love economy, <laughs> and he's saying, my gosh, you know, um, we have to take notice of this, particularly now with the pandemic. We're beginning to see that it's the social economy which is just as important as that which is denominated in money units, the volunteer yeah. sector. Absolutely. You know, the, um, isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's a, it's a, it's, yeah. But it shows also for me the power of, uh, of an illustration, an image that helps us all to, to understand how important it is not only what is visible in this top half of the cake, but what is in, in the half uh, bottom of the cake. Because uh, so much that uh, nature gives. Uh, and I think after that also, uh, Environment economics have grown over the past 20 years. Uh, it didn't exist much before, so um, 30 years, I guess. So it's very, very, very useful. And I, we, I think all of us should thank you for, for making the invisible visible through that. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, because um, I just um, wrote uh, to a lot of my friends in the ecological economics movement. Um, and I'll have to send you, uh, I'll send you a copy of this because I sent them a long critique, you know, um, and they're talking, they keep on talking about degrowth. Um, and apparently, you know, this new film by Michael Moore, mm -hmm. uh, which tries to say that the green economy won't work and we can't have a transition to renewable energy because it'll be too expensive and da da da. And, um, and I was thinking, my God, I have to jump in here, you know, because I could see how the economics in ecological economics was taking over from the ecology and that they needed to expand the model and bring in anthropology and history and, and sociology and technology assessment and future studies and all the other stuff that, that I do. So, um, Basically, uh, unfortunately, um, this uh, sort of uh, degrowth, uh, which is a mindless kind of mantra, 
um, because there's always in any society there's always something is growing something is dying and this ecosystems would have to be maintained and so the whole thing you know about degrowth is just silly but unfortunately they infected the mind of michael moore mm-hmm. he um put it into this very unfortunate film which hasn't helped anybody so um so anyway uh you know the um the whole uh in, in politics of the solar age which came out in 1981 uh I decided that there was no way of salvaging economics. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was very uh, supportive of ecological economics. Um, and then I realized, no, no, no. Um, they're basing it still on money coefficients and all, mm-hmm. of the, uh, all of the languaging, the obsolete languaging of economic text books, you know, about debt and inflation and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. Whereas really we need to move to real world science. Hmm. And um, so uh, I can remember back then um, that I was invited by a chapter of the Ecological Economics um, Society. Uh, this was a, a, a big country and they asked me to be president of their chapter. And, and I had to decline because by that time, I realized that the economics profession is still too powerful and has too large a, an influence Indeed. on the whole ecological economics um, approach. Let's move to uh, ethical markets. Uh, for many years, you have been involved in, in the work uh, linking ethics and markets. <laughs> Uh, would you share with us what is that work you do around ethical markets? Uh, what is that? Why do you do that? Um, it seems you, you make a strong link between ethics and business, and uh, we would like yes. to hear from you on that. Well, here's how I came at it. Um, I spent uh, 20 years advising the Calvert Group of Socially Responsible uh, uh, Mutual Funds, um, in developing the screens that they use in their portfolios to make sure that companies, you know, have a good record on all of these social uh, aspects and environmental aspects. And, and also, uh, you know, I got them to uh, partner with me on the Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators. And I left Calvert in 2004 to start ethical markets media because I realized that the mainstream media would never be able to really report the story of the green transition, which I saw happening. All of these business models were coming onto my desk, you know, solar energy companies and companies in wind energy and electric vehicles and LED lighting and all of the aspects uh, you know, regenerative agriculture, the whole thing. And uh, basically, uh, you know, there was sort of, um, I realized that none of this new stuff would be able to get into the mainstream uh, media, particularly not the mainstream financial media, because it was all of their advertising, which controls their content, their advertising came from all the fossilized sectors, 
you know, the, the fossil fuels, the fossilized agriculture, the fossilized um, approaches to pharmaceuticals, to everything was based on petroleum. And I thought, well, I hate the idea, but I better start a platform which can report uh, and help accelerate the market in the direction that it needs to go. And the point I wanted to make is that there's nothing wrong with markets, that human beings have been doing markets and trading with each other ever since we came out of the trees. Mm -hmm. And um, Carl Polanyi pointed that out in his wonderful book about um, the Pacific Islanders who use shells, you know, and they called the cooler rings. And they would, uh, they would ply their canoes between all of these um, islands in the Pacific and exchange different kind of shells with each other, uh, representing their trust and various commodities and all of that. And so basically, um, markets are, are okay. What's not okay is capitalism, is the idea, capitalism was uh, a, an idea that you could turn everything into money and then accumulate the money and then have the money start making more money. <laughs> and, and then um, it would have to keep uh, taking over resources um, and all the resources of the planet and in and all of the people of the planet would be sucked up into this uh, money system and the, the idea of accumulating money um gave uh a turn money um and the markets that run on money it kind of weaponized the whole system and um, allowed it to go all over the planet, led, if necessary, by militarism, military conquest, as it was in so many African countries. And so, so there's nothing wrong with markets. Markets are evolving all the time. Like if Adam Smith came back today, um, he would not even recognize what we consider markets now. You know, we have social markets, we have ecological markets, we have markets in solar energy, and you know, that uh, Adam Smith would be amazed. So uh, I thought that the best thing to do was to cover these evolving markets and to point out that markets are always based on trust. Mm, totally, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and transparency and accountability, and that you can't do markets uh, for very long without accountability, transparency, and trust. And particularly not in our day, day and age where we're in an information-based society. And uh, like I say, we all live in mediocracies. Doesn't mm. matter what form of government you think you live under. You know, it's, it's probably a mediocrity and has an attention economy. And, and this is what all of the Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram and all that, they are run, they're attention economies, all to do with grabbing your attention and uh, taking your information and monetizing it in some way or other, you know. Sure. And so, sure. so, so uh, what I thought is that ethical markets media 
would be able to cover all of these issues and would be able to track um, the evolution of really good green technologies and really ethical companies and showcase the ones that were moving in the right direction. So that was how we linked up, of course, with the Green Economy Coalition uh, yeah. in London. And, you know, because, um, uh, yes, uh, we have to have the Green New Deal and we have to have what's going on in Europe now, you know, which is they call the Green Deal. That the new president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, she sounds just like me. We had a clip of her uh, in one of our webinars. I did a webinar with Mattis Wackenagel, mm -hmm. which um, is on, the recording is uh, on our website. And we played, I played like two and a half minutes of Ursula von der Leyen talking about the, the stimulus money that the European uh, Commission and the European Union is voting now because of the pandemic. And she was saying, you know, every euro of that must go toward building an economy, a green, clean, just economy of the future and all the new infrastructure that we need to build on and nothing should go to the fossil fuel past. So mm -hmm. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. and, and that message, you know, it's like a meme that's going all around the world now. You know, there's this uh, guy at Stanford and um, we published his report and he said that there are versions of the Green New Deal now in 130 countries. Sure. It's uh, it's like what you um, in in a, in a way what you are doing with the, the ethical market. We could say you are helping to give visibility to a number of good stories uh, that is actually contributing to the shift or into, towards the common good, but from a market point of view. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And I mean, look at Costa Rica. I mean, Costa Rica has been an example to the world in so many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, ever since they uh, did decided to not have the military and instead become a first world country in terms of, you know, the social and environmental indicators. So they're still leading the way. But there are many, many other countries. I mean, many of the sub-Saharan African countries now um, that are our correspondents we deal with a lot. And they will never be able to afford central nuclear power plants and hundreds of miles of transmission lines and all of that. That's ridiculous. Uh, and they're all going for microgrids of um, solar, you know, village-based solar energy. And not paid for, not in money, as you know, but um, it's all cell phone uh, information-based money. There's no actual notes. It's just, um, you know, cell phone accounting. So yeah. it's bypassed the old banking system. And you see, the, the old financial system weaponized money. Money was a perfectly useful invention. Hmm. But it That's weaponized. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. But we have to understand, you know, um, uh, where money uh, is not the same as wealth. You know, money is supposed to be a tracking system, you know, that reflects the, the, the real wealth of, you know, nature and human ingenuity. But instead, people fell in love 
um, with the money symbol, you know, uh, rather than what it's supposed to represent, it would be like, um, you know, with thinking that, um, that centimeters and hectares are what we're short of, <laughs> mm. rather than the fact that they're, they're just the measuring system. Yeah. But an entirely, an entirely fictitious idea that money is anything to do with wealth. And yet, my gosh, I live with that every day. <laughs> I mean, That's doing, uh, doing uh, seminars with financial people that still are in this kind of magical thinking, you know, that somehow all of these financial instruments and their, uh, their particular kinds of um, concepts and, uh, you know, their un very narrow understanding of risk and all of this. I mean, basically, it has nothing to do with science. And so in our last um, Green Transition Scoreboard, we called it um, transitioning to science-based investing. And we were saying that the greatest risk now in the global capital markets are what we call science denial, not just climate denial, but basically a misunderstanding of how the planet actually works and how the, you know, the phytoplankton harvest the uh, solar uh, photons that come from the sun and create our food supply. But they don't understand any of the actual scientific realities of our conditions of survival. And so we call it um, magical thinking in finance. Imagine that. Magical thinking. We all need to better understand the basics of uh, what it means to, to survive uh, in a healthy way in this planet, right? Yeah. So there are many people out there uh, taking big decisions, important decisions uh, that will have a huge impact and have no understanding of... Uh, Yes. the impact of those decisions in, in people's well-being. Oh, well yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in, I remember in politics of the solar age, uh, just to go back to the illusions of abstraction, that mathematics, you know, that economics kind of fell in love with mathematics and all of that. And uh, basically, um, an example is compound interest. Now, compound interest, which kind of drives all of these financial markets around the world. Oh, I want to invest in bonds and, you know, I get compound interest every year or whatever it is, you know. And as I pointed out back in 1981 in politics, sorry, compound interest is um, a fantasy of mathematicians. It's kind of... Um, Basically, uh, it's a concept, a theoretical concept, um, which has absolutely nothing to do with reality. In reality, it's more likely the other way around, um, that the laws of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics, you know, says that energy gets degraded as you use it. Whereas this compound interest thing is kind of the wishful thinking of the econo of the mathematics and the economics profession and so i pointed that out that at the very root of the financial system is this kind of magical thinking 
of compound interest. It's, it's just not in the real world. Yeah, indeed. Hazel, um, let's talk a little bit about ethics. Uh, many people perceive ethics as uh, something that's too abstract, not useful, not practical, and they stress the, the importance of action. And uh, in my case, I have, been seen, I have seen ethics as an instrument of social transformation and actually a, a guide for action. Can you, give a, can you comment on that? And what do you think of that? Well, uh, the whole idea of ethics really um, is the, the, the basic governance of human societies and human affairs. And the, the very simplest and the oldest tradition of ethics um, going in, in every religious tradition in almost every society is the ethics of the golden rule that says that I don't want you to do anything to me uh, that I wouldn't do to you and the other way, way around. It's in every, the basis of every um, tradition. And that's a system statement. And instead, we got very far away from that with GDP and uh, the economic textbooks that said we were all competitive and selfish and into envy and um, you know jealousy and accumulating and hoarding assets and so I, I began to contrast um, the economic textbook GDP model as putting into the hard drive of your society uh, an operating system based on the seven deadly sins mm -hmm. we count them you know <laughs> and yet the traditional uh, ethical model has always been the golden rule. And when we get back And it's to still the very valid. Rule, it's still valid. Yes, it's totally valid. Totally, mm -hmm. totally. In fact, that that's the best systems theory that human beings ever came up with. You know, that's the foundation of ethical thinking. And, uh, and so what I was so attracted to the Earth Charter, you know, I was in... Uh, Rio de Janeiro in 1992 for the Earth Summit, and uh, where the Earth Charter was launched, as you so know, my friend. You were part of that process. Uh, that yeah, mm -hmm. at the very beginning. Yeah, so the Earth Charter, the Earth Charter idea started around that very moment in 92 Earth Summit, and uh, yeah, of course the Earth Summit didn't uh, have yeah. any agreement on that but uh, there was a consultation yeah. after that it was finally launched in the year 2000 oh, yeah. and of course uh, this year we are celebrating 20 years since the launch of the earth shatter so it's can so you amazing. share with us this story of how did you how did you become involved in, or interested in the earth shatter and why well i remember uh, as i say the launch of the earth charter which was in 1992 in rio de janeiro at the first earth summit and i was there and I just thought oh this is exactly what we need you know eleanor roosevelt uh, was so wonderful with the universal declaration of human rights but we have to have a universal declaration of human responsibilities you know it's like part of the golden rule is you have to have both um, you have to have both rights and responsibilities. And so I came back, you, uh, you were probably there, uh, Miriam. 
um, to um, Rio plus five. I was there, I went yes. back to Rio de Janeiro uh, and Maurice Strong was there and Steve Rockefeller had um, been just working so patiently, incredible amount of volunteer time taking the Earth Charter around and getting it ratified by more and more groups of NGOs and everybody else. So I and remember listening to people being, in, in crafting the words and the comments of it. Yes, oh my gosh. So um, I remember being in a lot of those meetings that he was having at the time. And I said, well, you know, um, I can get the Calvert Group to become one of the first corporations that will sign the Earth, the Earth Charter. So Calvert um, signed the Earth Charter. And, um, and, and, you know, I just love those 16 principles because, you know, they, they are all part of this ethics. They're really uh, the ethics of the golden rule spelled out very carefully for the modern age that we live in. And so when I was invited to the Peace Palace in The Hague uh, for the actual launch, I'm sure you were there too. Yes, and June 2000. There and, uh, yeah, in 2000, and Mikhail Gorbachev, who was also a good friend. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev has always been so wonderful. Um, uh, recommending my books and stuff like that and so that was a wonderful day I never forget that with all the children singing you remember yes. what a wonderful launch day it was, it was very and, so, um, and, and then you know I was doing seminars um, with my friend Oscar Motomura in Sao Paulo mm -hmm. um, at um, uh, Amanake and I told, uh, uh, I, I was presenting, you know, I was doing uh, lectures there regularly, and I presented the Earth Charter uh, to all of the people at Amanake, and of course, Oscar Motomura absolutely loved it. And I said, come on, you must sign it, Oscar, you must be involved with this. You know? mm -hmm. And so I, I have, uh, I think the last time you and I were together was probably in Lyon in France. There was in a, Lyon, as Yes, at the Earth Dialogue, 2002. Yeah, yeah. yeah you remember Sokotakai was there. Right. And um, see, they are all good friends of mine. And I did the mm. book with um, Daisaku Ikeda. Mm, wonderful on dialogues. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Earth Charter is one of the most important social uh, inventions you might say mm -hmm. yeah, it, yeah hazel so do you think that uh, the culvert group you brought their shout out to the culvert group and they would be one of the first uh, corporations that have had uh, adopted committed to their charter yes yes whether they still have because now the calvert group has been sold to another company but I see. then when i was when i was at calvert um, I was at Calvert, um, well, I was on their advisory council designing the screens along with Amory Lovins and many, many other people. Um, and so um, back at the beginning of Calvert in 1982, I was there from 1982 to 2002. And back then they uh, signed the Earth Charter and they had it on their website. 
and they probably don't anymore because it was sold to another company. Mm. But you were wonderful in doing all of that. You have been uh, certainly a wonderful ambassador in, in taking it and flagging it in so many different uh, different contexts. Um, in current times, so 20 years have passed, uh, what do you think is the value of, uh, of their shadow, the value of, uh, of instruments such as their shadow that articulates a vision and articulate some values and principles that could guide humanity towards a more just, uh, sustainable, and peaceful world. What What do you think is the value of that of their shadow itself? Well, uh, you know, I was very hopeful when the UN had that um, summit uh, in was it in Cape Town or no, in Johannesburg um, on sustainability. Right, it was two thousand two the think, World Summit on Sustainable yeah, Development Johannesburg. I think, I think at that point, many of us hoped that the UN would adopt the Earth Charter. And I don't know why that didn't happen. You probably know much more than I do why that didn't happen. Correct. But, they they uh, should have had a reference in the draft of the Johannesburg Declaration. And uh, apparently yeah. someone in the, from the US government uh, wanted to take out that reference. Oh no, was it my country again? Messed it up. I apologize. No. So the point is now, you know, we're having this conference, the World Academy of Art and Science and UNCAD and UNOG are having this conference called Global Leadership for the 21st Century. And um, I uh, inserted into their statement, which I co-wrote with uh, the CEO of the, uh, uh, of the um, World Academy of Art and Science, um, I inserted the Earth Charter <laughs> in the statement. So, because, you know, I mean, it's just, it's all to do with, you know, getting this meme out there so that people absolutely cannot avoid using it. And you've done a wonderful job over the years. Uh, you've been very faithful, Miriam. I know there's been lots of times when uh, people try to sort of, uh, redo things and you have stuck with it and i admire you tremendously for that thank you so much Hazel, and thank you for for inspiring us all given that we are at the end of our of our podcast today i'd like to add in given the fact that you just mentioned about leadership for 21st century uh, the world is in so much need of uh, good leadership uh, in all different sectors, you know, private sector, civil society, governments, uh, intergovernmental arena. Do you have hope yeah. for good leadership and what do you think is needed? Well, we just have to keep working at it. Thank you so much, Hazel. Thank you, too, for your work, your faithful work with the Earth Charter. If you like this episode, please share it and support our movement by making a donation. This podcast is developed by Earth Charter International as part of our work as UNESCO Chair on Education for Sustainable Development with the Earth Charter. For more information, visit our website at earthcharter.org.